Will you join me please in praying? Let's ask for God's help as we open the word together. Father, we come because we are needy. We need the food of your word. We need to, we need to experience your presence. And there are many cares that compete for our attention right now. And we ask that you would just move those things to the sidelines and that you would capture our attention in your kindness, in your power, in your love. We're also mindful that there are sins in our souls, sins of thought, sins of word, sins of deed, things that we are ashamed of, some that we're not even aware of, but we renounce the sins of our hearts and of our minds, those things that are not only in rebellion against you, but those things that are a hindrance to our fellowship and walk with you at this very moment. And so we renounce them and we turn away from them and we ask that you would cleanse us from every unrighteousness. Our desire is to be in right relationship with you and we know that our reconciliation comes at such a great cost. A cost we cannot even fully fathom but a cost revealed in your word and one of those passages is before us today and I ask that you would not only console the hearts that are weighed down with sin, that you would comfort those who grieve and sorrow over their sin, but that you would bring conviction upon those who are indifferent to their sin. You did not create them to live a life characterized by sinfulness and indifference to their Creator. Would you draw them to yourself today? And I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would not only convict and comfort your people, but that you would inspire and motivate us. That the greatness of your love, that the force of this gospel that we, many of us say we believe, would become so alive in our souls that we could do nothing other than serve you and love you, to follow you, to speak of you. And I pray that the the very words, the commands, the explanations uh, that the Apostle Paul puts before us in Colossians 1 would become a part of what we are, of who we are, for your great glory. We continue to ask that as your word goes out across this valley, as people stand in, in assembly rooms like this, up and down this valley today, and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, this cornerstone that we have sung of, the one who bled and died and rose again, that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ would find a place in many hearts that have not had room for him before, that this would be a day of salvation. Bless your churches up and down this valley and grow them for the glory of Christ. And we continue to think and even rest in your promises 
that you, God the Father, have made promises to God the Son that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And, and we continue, Lord, to plead that promise and say, oh God, fulfill it in our day. Fulfill it in our generation. That Jesus may have the inheritance for which he died. That he may receive the glory that has been promised him from before the foundation of the world. And that people created in your image to know you would come into that right relationship. So bless your word as it is proclaimed publicly, as it is shared privately, and let it result in the salvation of many, many souls. We thank you for the privilege of being here together today and ask now, Spirit of God, that you would come and teach and instruct us in your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you open your Bibles to Colossians 1? And we actually now have pew Bibles in every row. So if you do not have a copy of the Scriptures, you're more than welcome to use one of those. You're, and if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, you're actually to, welcome to take one with you. I mean, we don't want it to just be something you would use here uh, one morning a week. But if you need a copy of the Scriptures, it would be our joy to say, yes, take that with you. Colossians 1, that's a New Testament letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul to first century believers in a, in a city called Colossae, and thus the Colossians. Um, and I think on your, in your pew Bible, if you're trying to find it, you'll, you'll locate it on page 983. I should have confirmed that beforehand. If somebody wants to verify that or tell me that I'm way off. Is that good, Matt? Is it actually 983? All right, wonderful. What I'd like to do is, is read verses 15 through 23 and then actually go back and pick up a couple of things really beginning in verse 3, but I'm just going to make a few brief comments regarding that. So, And, and our, our real focal point will be verses 21, 22, and 23 this morning. But you follow along as I read Colossians 1 beginning in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Do you know that in a recent survey, a little over 10% of Americans answered the question, do you feel sadness all of the time or some of the time affirmatively? It means one out of 10 people in an assembly like this would say and answer the question, yeah, I feel sadness, either all the time or enough 
to say I'm, I'm a sad person. In the same survey, a question was asked regarding hopelessness. A little over 6% said, yeah, I'm hopeless. And if you can believe this, and I can, I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but a little over 5% said they actually feel worthless. You put those three things together and say, what an existence, sadness, hopelessness, worthlessness. These are things that every human being wrestles with at some point, and some individuals are characterized. So in an assembly like this, and I'm terrible at estimating, I don't know if, Matt, you've taken a quick head count or whatever, What's 10% of our head count this morning? Eight, so we have 80. Okay, so that means eight people here would say, yeah, I'm in the hopeless category. Three to four, maybe five would say, or I'm sorry, eight would say, I'm sad. Four or five would say, I'm in the hopeless category. And some of you would say, I feel worthless. What makes us hopeless? Well, sometimes it can be a personal failure. You've experienced such a setback that you just say, you know what, it, I mean, life will go on, but it will never be the same, and I really have no hope of it improving. It could be a painful experience that has created a sense of loss in your soul. The pain is so intense, even to this point, though the event itself may be in the rearview mirror by many, many years, you're, you're still struggling just this this profound sense of, of loss. Something can never be recovered. Maybe a relationship, family, maybe a friendship, maybe something related to business. And, and sometimes people will speak of alienation that's resulted from those things. And so family get-togethers are, are not even an option any longer. And so there's distance in, in relationships that are supposed to be very significant and meaningful in life. It could even be a sense of of having been forsaken. Maybe you as a child had the painful experience of parents who separated and one of them walked away from you and you just, you haven't heard from that parent for years or that parent only calls once a year and you just know there's, there's no relationship and you have no hope that you would ever be together as a family again. Sometimes people feel hopeless because they've been oppressed by an authority figure and, and they have this accompanying sense of powerlessness. There's nothing I can do. I'm just stuck in, in this particular situation. It may be a job where you just would desperately love to have a way out, but you're trapped and you know that jobs are hard to come by in your particular field of expertise and, and, and this boss, though, is just relentless and you feel hopeless. There are all kinds of scenarios that create that sense of hopelessness. And yet, even this morning, uh, the name of our church, Gospel Hope Church, is intriguing to some. And it's been fun, even in recent weeks, since we put the new sign up to just interact with people in the community. And some have even shown up just because we put up a new sign. And others have commented on it when, when we've been out and about and talking about it. Oh, yeah, I saw the sign. And occasionally, we, we have opportunity to even explain Gospel Hope church and why would we choose those particular words it's not simply because there are many in the community we're a part of many in this day and age who are hopeless but it's actually rooted in the fact that the bible speaks of gospel hope and when the bible speaks of hope it uses that terminology in a very particular way and one of those passages is before us this morning now we didn't read from verses 3 uh, on down through the, the end of verse 23, but I do want to know just a couple of quick things. As Paul begins this letter, he opens with a prayer of gratitude. 
a prayer of gratitude. He says in verse three, we always thank God, the Father of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then he's gonna name three things very quickly. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and then he says, the love that you have for all the saints. And then he ties those two things to this little phrase, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now you say faith, love, hope. Where, where, does that sound familiar? Where have I heard those things before? Some of you are, are thinking of 1 Corinthians 13, aren't you? Where Paul said, now abides faith, hope, love, these three the greatest of these is love, and he's making a little different point, but here he's actually making a po point that the faith of the Colossian believers and the love that the Colossian believers uh, have demonstrated for all the saints seems to flow out of the hope that's been laid up for them in heaven. And, and even that terminology is a little different for us. Well, who laid it up? I mean, did they lay up this hope in heaven or has somebody else acted in a way? Well, that's, that's where this passage is gonna be very helpful in explaining some of that. So let's press a little deeper. And then a second thing that, that strikes us about this particular letter, it's hard to see in the English the way it's written uh, or translated for us, but it was initially written in Greek. It, it would even be an obvious on the page that suddenly Paul goes from long sentences to shorter phrases and the way uh, it's formatted for us, you realize, oh, verses 15 to 20 are a little different. What's different about them? You know, it's actually a hymn. It's a hymn text. So it's as if Paul grabbed a, a hymnal, as it were, and, and took some of those lines from it. And maybe this is the entirety of the hymn. Maybe this is just a, a section of it. We're not totally sure. But verses 15 through 20 are actually a hymn of praise. A hymn of praise. Now, there are eight really significant truths kind of packaged around the one big truth. The big truth in the middle of this hymn, um, if you read down through this with me, uh, look at the end of verse 18. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, I have no idea what tune they used to sing this hymn or how they sang it uh, in Paul's day, but that does seem to be kind of the centerpiece of this hymn, the preeminence of Jesus. And packaged around this are eight powerful truths concerning the preeminence of Christ. Now, as a little aside, um, what makes a great hymn? I mean, we just sang some great songs in my estimation. Uh, and of course, tunes that are singable are always helpful. You know, we, I, I mentioned this briefly last week in our Membership Matters class. I mean, congregational singing is the big deal for us here. And we're happy for those who've been even professionally trained, but we're not trying to put on a concert every week. We actually want to sing songs that have tunes that are accessible to ordinary people, as most of us are. All of us are, right? But it's interesting to me that God didn't actually preserve any tunes for us. He didn't preserve any of the Old Testament tunes that Israel sang with the Psalms. He didn't preserve tunes that Moses sang, the Song of Moses, you know, that's recorded in the Pentateuch, or the Song of Deborah or Barak. He didn't record this tune. I think in part because he knows from generation to generation and culture to culture, music varies. Whether you're a fan of opera or not, Chinese opera is really hard for a Western ear to handle, but they think it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Any of you heard Chinese opera? To me, and I don't mean to be unkind, I'm actually speaking more from my Western ignorance of all that's involved, but it's, it's kind of a squealing, screeching sound. 
And, and not that I'm a big opera fan to begin with, but there are certain aspects of opera that I can't appreciate and the, you know, the scene design and stage lighting and all that goes into the production. But you know, culturally speaking, those, they, they value that. And, and we would not so much. I think part of the reason God didn't preserve tunes is that he leaves it up to the individual congregations to figure out what works best for them. And so we do that. But beyond tunes, I'm sure of this. I'm sure of this not only from the example of Colossians 1, but things that Paul says in, in places like Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 and 5 where the commands to sing to one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We sing and make melody in our heart to God. We're called to exhort and admonish and encourage one another through our singing. So that means the text has to have substance to it. It's got to do more than just make us feel good. Because there's all kinds of music out there that would make you feel good, but it doesn't actually have anything substantial to say. And I think this hymn text is exemplary. And if we just quickly look through these four uh, or, or eight, I'm holding up four fingers, of these eight particular truths concerning Jesus, we'll recognize there is, there is weighty substance for God's people to know and sing. Look with me, first of all, verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. His preeminence is displayed as the image of God. And it's crystal clear in this passage that, that he's not just a likeness to God, as if he gives you a sense of God, but he is actually God in flesh, right? The invisible God. God's a spirit, the scriptures teach us. No man has seen God at any time. There have been manifestations of his glory but, but God is a spirit. He doesn't dwell in bodily form as you and I do. But Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, has made him visible. An amazing thought. Number two, we're just going to move quick, quickly through these. His preeminence is displayed as the firstborn over creation. And I use the word over intentionally, knowing that our English translations refer to him as the firstborn of all creation. And there are notions out there that, that, that Jesus wasn't always God and there was a time where he began. There are all kinds of, of variations uh, of understanding his existence or his pre-existence, but this is one of those points in the text where it is crystal clear Paul intends to communicate the fact that, that he is uh, the, the firstborn over all creation. And the term firstborn is not so much about how he got here, uh, as it emphasizes that he exists apart from the created order. And the word, very specifically, if we traced it back to its original root, conveys the idea that he is first in rank. First in rank. And then look at verse 16, the part of it, by him all things were created. You can't be a created being and be the one who created it all. In one of my apologetics classes years ago, I, remember, I, I don't remember everything I learned, but one of the things that our professor made a big deal about was the law of non-contradiction. That just means something can't be A and non-A at the same time and in the same way. And Jesus can't be creator of all and also a created being. You tracking with me here? And there are a lot of people who seem to be confused about that. No, his preeminence is displayed in that he is the creator of all things by him. 
And, and Paul even says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And those four terms have references to the spirit realm. All things were created by him. And then he says all things were created through him and for him. There's so much we could say. These are entire messages uh, just packed into these little phrases. But his preeminence is clearly displayed as the firstborn or first in rank over all creation. Number three is preeminence is displayed as the preexistent sustainer or preexistent one. Look at verse 17. He is before all things. There is a temporal priority to the universe itself. Um, and in him, all things hold together. And this is where I get the idea of sustainer. It's not on the screen there, but the preexistent one. Uh, so he was there prior to all that's created, but he also upholds all things. Think about that this morning. We're doing a little landscaping in our yard, and yesterday, uh, Haley and Seth and I ran over to Home Depot to get some supplies, and some of them were heavy, some paver stones, some sacks of pea gravel, and as we were loading those into the back of, of, of our car, our Tahoe, I was just thinking to myself, you know, I, I am so weak in comparison to the size of this planet, how much does planet Earth weigh? And I know it's been estimated. I looked it up once upon a time. Can't remember it. I just know it was a huge number with like 23 or 26 zeros after it. And we know the laws of physics and science tell us about things like gravity and yeah, the sun is there. But at the end of the day, how does it all really hold together? And this is one of those passages that tells us Jesus Christ does it. He not only created the universe, mapped it out in his wise design, but even at this very moment, he holds it together. You know, I think we ought to be good stewards of the planet that God has created and placed us on, but I'm actually not worried about the end of the world happening in, in, in the way some say it may happen. I'm not really very concerned that the planet is going to be superheated and humans will die. Uh, I think the Lord has told us how it's going to end. And it's not, it's a different kind of global warming, if I can put it that way. I mean, he actually says a fervent heat that he will decree will come, melt the whole thing down, and then he's going to recreate it. See, I'm all for emissions tests. And I think we ought not to, you know, put stuff in our water system that would poison us. But I'm not losing a lot of sleep over some of those issues. Because Jesus Christ holds it all together. And it's not going to fly apart. One second before he says, it's time. His preeminence is displayed as the preexistent sustainer. Fourth notion, idea, not notion. His preeminence is displayed as the head of the church. Now it becomes a little more personal in verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. The terminology speaks of Christ's authority over all of his people. And, and we've, we've started broadly, and now we're speaking more specifically. And he's speaking specifically to the Colossian believers. And this passage speaks to us as an assembly of God's people. The terminology speaks of Christ's authority over all of his people as well as our dependence upon him because this portion of you from the neck down can't function without the top portion, can it? 
And you know, the church doesn't have a life, doesn't have an existence apart from Jesus Christ, who is our head. Fifthly, his preeminence is displayed as the firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning, Paul writes, the firstborn from the dead. And again, that that terminology that positions him as first in rank. He's the first one who came out of the grave never to die again. Conquered death completely. And we celebrated this just a couple of weeks ago in the resurrection celebration of Easter, didn't we? He's the founder of a new humanity, one author writes. The resurrection age has burst forth, and as the first who has risen from among those who had fallen asleep, he is the first fruits. That's a beautiful term from 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of those who are resurrected. And you know, with spring arriving, and and you see some green appearing, and and we we were talking with some folks, some friends just yesterday uh, about putting out a couple of herbs and things a little too early and that last snow and cold temperature got them. And, and our, because we're new, newer in the valley, uh, one of our friends said, you know, that's why a lot of people just wait until after Mother's Day and then it's safe. So you learn a few things. But you know, you get excited when you, when you see the buds on the tree and then you start seeing some of that fruit appear. And when it's time, whether it be the fruit trees in your yard or maybe you've got some fruit bushes or this, that, or the other, when the first fruit arrives and it can be picked, Uh, it's not like you say this is our one and only chance, but you're actually encouraged knowing that for several days or weeks, depending on what it is, more fruit is coming, right? So the first fruits would be the first blueberries you take off the the bush and you eat it on your cereal or throw it in your pancakes, but you do that with with the joy of knowing more fruit's coming. And that's the term that is used with reference to Jesus as the resurrected one. He's the first fruits of those who were asleep but will be resurrected to life eternal. He's preeminent. The next idea, his preeminence is displayed as the fullness of God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You think about that. Paul is clearly stating that everything which makes God, God is located in Jesus Christ. That's mind-boggling. He's not just a being who has some divine power. He is God who possesses all of God's attributes and power and characteristics. The next notion, or next idea is found in verse 20. His preeminence is displayed as the reconciler of God and man. Through him, Paul writes, to reconcile to himself all things. And that word reconcile is where it begins to take on an even more personal tone for us. Reconciliation is the reestablishing of proper relations that have been broken and disrupted. And there are many reasons that our relationships are broken and fractured. The particular relationship that's in view here, though, is the relationship that humans have with God, their creator. But notice this before we move into that uh, area of, of thought and discussion he, he reconciles all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. And remember what Romans says? 
that even creation itself has been subjected to futility. That's part of the results of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Creation itself is not what it ought to be. And listen to what Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, verses 20 and 21. But because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's hard for us to fathom that inanimate objects that make up this planet actually have been subjected to a kind of futility in this temporary period until Jesus Christ reconciles all things to himself. Even the environmental brokenness we see is a result of sin and will be remedied only through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that's kind of a side point. Let's press in a little deeper to the next phrase because the preeminence that Jesus displays as the reconciler of God and man gets even more specific. His preeminence is displayed as the sacrificial peacemaker. He's reconciling all things to himself, Paul says, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That term making peace is a beautiful one. Making peace is what happens when warring parties are brought together again and, and every reason they have for being at war and even the weapons of their warfare are, are laid down. We've watched in horror this international incident, haven't we, where chemical weapons have been used against women and children. I mean, it's, it's unthinkable even if it would be one army against another aggressive attacking army. But when you see innocent life lost, and it has stirred the, the debate all across the globe, and I'm not here to say, you know, we were right or wrong politically, although personally, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we stood up to the bully, as it were. I don't know enough to say what we should or should not do as a nation or what the nations of the earth should do, but it's a perfect illustration of hostility, how all of these years and all of these threats and all of these sanctions have not yet resulted in genuine peace in the nation of Syria or even the surrounding nations, has it? But what has brought these particular hostilities of sin and rebellion of, of, against God to an end is nothing less than the blood of the cross. Man, because of his sin, is hostile toward God, and God, because of his holiness, is, in a real sense, hostile toward the human race. Now, yes, he loves the human race perfectly. I do believe that. The, the scriptures teach it. That's why he sent his son into the world. But he's a holy and just God, and that means sin has to be dealt with. So God is also hostile in one sense, but Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, enters the world, sheds his blood on the cross, and he stands preeminently as the sacrificial peacemaker. Now these are eight great truths that are packaged around this one central truth. He is preeminent. There's just no one like Jesus. And Paul brings the force of all of that truth concerning Jesus and what he has done on the cross, and we've looked at some of that in recent weeks as we've been in Colossians 2, and now look at verse 21, and this is where the gospel hope really begins to blossom for us. You can't separate that paragraph of verses 21 to 23 from what has preceded it. The hymn is preparatory for receiving the hope of the gospel. 
And Paul says in verse 21, and you, and that's a plural you, he's speaking to the church, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We'll pause right there and just say, you know, before we get to the gospel hope, we have to acknowledge there's a costly work uh, of reconciliation that is underway and, and part of understanding what Jesus has actually done is to acknowledge that sin is the barrier to relationship with God. It's not an education problem. It's not a cultural issue. It's a sin issue. And Paul uses really strong terms. You were alienated and hostile in mind. I wonder if you see yourself as ever having been hostile toward God or even presently. A lot of people think, well, I, I got nothing against God but they love their sin. They're not really willing to acknowledge that God is holy, he's all-powerful, he has absolute authority over our lives, and his law is the only law in the universe that ultimately matters, and when you violate his law, you are a sinner. We looked at some of that over the last couple of weeks. Well, what do you do with your sin? Many people try to remedy it themselves or just kind of push it into the corner and ignore it or they compare themselves one to another and we say, oh, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as those people. And you could always find somebody on planet Earth who's worse off than you or just in worse uh, personal condition than you. But God never asks you to compare yourself and if you can find enough people who are, who are further down the line of evil and hostility, then you're, you know, you're good. And we actually holds us accountable for our sin. In another one of his New Testament letters, the, the book uh, that we call Romans, Paul wrote that people created in the image of God to know him actually exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It was a worship issue. They began to worship idols. And then there are three verbs that Paul writes that, that God, that capture what God did. Verse 24 of Romans 1, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And it's interesting that people rebelled against God, started walking away from him, creating their own forms and images of worship, and God essentially gave them what they wanted. Gave them up, gave them up, gave them up. Are you among that group this morning that have been given up to things like this? Are you a prisoner of the lust of your heart? The deceiving thing about lust of this kind is that we always think we're in control of it, but the reality is we aren't, and many people make the mistake of thinking, well, I can walk away from this sinful relationship anytime I want to, or I can walk away from that habit I know it's destroyed other people, but you know, I, I'm not actually a drug addict. And we're deceiving ourselves. The only hope of rescue from that kind of destructive lust, from that kind of dishonorable passion, or that kind of debased mind that Paul writes of in Romans 1 is through Jesus Christ. It's a costly work that Jesus has done in part because the sin created such a horrific scenario. 
Sin is the barrier to relationship with God. Here's a second thought for you. Reconciliation is the work of Christ to bring us to God. God never says to you, make your way back to me. He sends Jesus and says, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus will span the gap that exists between us. And Paul writes in verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Or verse 20, tying that thought in by the blood of the cross. His death, his blood, that he shed, the cross, it's all part of it. We sang of the cross this morning. We've been singing of it for weeks on end. One of our favorite hymns is the power of the cross. And we, we get to those particular lines where we say, sing, what a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. I'm not forgiven because of my obedience. You're not forgiven because you make promises to God that you'll do better. He doesn't accept you and, and, and reconcile himself to you because you, you know, turn over a, a new leaf and make promises that you'll change and serve him and do good things for him. No, reconciliation with God comes only through the death of Jesus Christ. Reconciliation with God is not through the blood atonement of any other creature, whether it be a bull or a goat or a lamb or whether it even be the blood that you might shed. I've heard it stated that some see a way of atonement that comes through the shedding of personal blood, but there's nothing in the Old Testament or New Testament that indicates a person could be reconciled to God in that way. It's only through Jesus. Only through his blood. So he's not only supreme over creation as the creator of all that is, but he's supreme over our sin as the sacrificial peacemaker. And his death on the cross is supremely and all-sufficient to save us forever. And there's not one part of that sacrifice that he's asking you to make for your salvation. God doesn't meet us halfway and say, I've done my part, now you do yours. He doesn't come three-quarters of the way. He spans the great gulf of our sin, of our alienation, of our hostility, and he does it all through the death and blood of Jesus Christ on his cross. It's a costly work, but here's a second thought for you under this heading of the Gospel of Hope. There's a divine purpose in that reconciliation. And look at the text with me again. Just feast your eyes on these words from the Apostle Paul. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, this is verse 22, in order to, and here's his purpose, to present you, and again, he's speaking to the church, but it does apply to us individually, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I think most people genuinely want to know that after this life, there's a life beyond. And more than that, I think most people want to believe that there is a divine being who's bigger, who's greater, who's more glorious, more loving than anybody they've ever known here on earth, and they'd like to live with him forever. And that's why the religions of the world typically talk about an afterlife with God. But here, Paul is speaking in very specific terms to say it is the purpose of God as a result of the work of Jesus Christ to actually present you at a future day with attributes and characteristics that you don't possess fully right now. We rejoiced over the last couple of weeks as we were studying Colossians 2, where Paul was teaching that through his death on the cross, Jesus actually took the record of our sin debt on himself, and God removed it, took it out of the way. It's been nailed to the cross. So that's, that's cause to rejoice, 
that your record of sin debt and my record of sin debt could be fully removed and God will never bring it up again when he's removed, but that still leaves us kind of in this state of neutrality potentially. I mean, how do I, uh, how do I become really what God wants me to be? And words like holy and blameless and above reproach would be part of the description that, that you would say would be necessary to be in the presence of God, and you're right. But this verse is telling us that it is the purpose of God to accomplish this because he will present us in that way to himself. Holy means that you have been cleansed and separated from all sin. I want to be holy. I aspire to be holy. I even try to practice holiness, but I know I am not yet in a state where all sin has been taken out of my life. The second word is blameless. That is, without any corrupting blemish or defect. Again, who here could say, yep, I've reached the blameless category. No, we're not there yet. Or thirdly, above reproach before him. That is, without any cause for accusation, free of any legal charge. And again, last week we looked at some of those references, both Old Testament and New Testament, that speak of Satan being the accuser of the brother. And one of the things that, that really strikes us is we give him reason to accuse. I've said stuff, thought stuff, and done stuff in the past week that falls into the category of sin, and so have you. So there's reason for accusation, but God is saying my purpose is not only to be reconciled to you, but to actually transform you as an individual so that one day when I present you, there's not gonna be anything in you that would create a barrier between us. You will be perfect because Jesus shed his blood, and that blood is powerful. The divine purpose for our reconciliation is that we would undergo this personal transformation. I pause right here and I think, do you know how much God loves you? That he would do this for you? He demonstrates his love not only in the sacrifice of his one and only son, but in this promise to transform us and to prepare us. There's a beautiful passage in the Old Testament, Zephaniah 3, verse 17. And again, this is one of the Old Testament prophets being, being inspired by the Holy Spirit to prophesy of a future day. And he, he describes the Lord himself, Yahweh, your God, Zephaniah writes, will be in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And you know, that word exult can actually be understood as, as twirling. And in some contexts, it's used to describe even dancing. Now that almost seems inappropriate because we, we think of God and all of his dignity and glory. But you know what? He reveals himself here as being a God of such overflowing joy that he actually moves, spins about, dances, if you will, as a result of that joy in seeing your final glorification, transformation. That's hope. Because you stare in the mirror like I do some days and just say, I am a mess. Or you have those really uncomfortable moments where your spouse or your children or your, your friend uh, near you sees you just erupt with ugly sinfulness and it may be your words and you're just standing there in your shame and humility and saying, oh, Lord, how long is this gonna go on? 
And this is one of those passages where he says, it's not gonna go on forever. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna transform you where words like holy and blameless and above reproach will characterize you because I'm gonna make it happen. Now, all of this, again, we're moving to verse 23. All of these things are true, and now, now comes a word of exhortation for us, and this is the activity that results from reconciliation. God has done this through Jesus Christ, his shed blood on the cross. That reconciliation has come through his death and his suffering. Now, verse 23 says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now, now you should not read this as if God did 50% and now he's leaving the rest to you. Actually, what is he calling you to do? If indeed you continue in the faith, faith is belief. And what are we believing? That God is who he said he is, that Jesus specifically is all of those things we, we just read about in the hymn. Wish we could hear the church at Colossae sing that hymn. But we believe all of that truth concerning Jesus, who he is, what he has done. If indeed you continue believing, and then he uses the word stable and steadfast, that's the positive statement of what he's calling us to do. Here's the negative statement of it. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now look at the positive statement, first of all. Continue in the faith. That is, remain in the faith. And then two words, stable and steadfast. That, those are builder's terms. And if you're a contractor or you, even a handyman, you will really appreciate uh, these terms. We've discovered that when we moved into our house that there were a number of construction issues, either shortcuts that someone previously had taken or things that were wholly neglected. And one of those was that our kitchen wall, the outside wall of the back of our house where the picture window is over the sink, that wall was not constructed properly. Do you know there wasn't one stud that ran from the floor to the ceiling in its entirety? I mean, it was, I'd have felt better if the wall had been constructed of Legos than what we saw behind the sheetrock. And the day we realized we were pulling sheetrock off and, and we were actually, some men were there to help us. And um, I came in and my friend Sam said, Danny, you gotta see this. And he actually just leaned against that wall. The whole thing moved. And I mean, this is an outside wall. You've got roofing trusses, you know, that rest on this thing. And I'm like, stop, stop, I believe you. <laughs> and, and those men in their skill, they shored it up and, and the thing is uh, in much better shape, and even the, the kitchen shelves that we had installed, they're just big slabs of oak. They're open shelves, uh, but those things are now bolted to the studs behind the sheetrock with these iron brackets that another friend's neighbor helped us make. I mean, that, that wall is not going to move uh, aside from an act of God at this point. It wasn't stable or steadfast, but now it is. It's not going anywhere. And that's part of what Paul is calling us uh, to, to practice with our faith. And, and the negative statement of that is also helpful for us. Look again at your text. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That is, don't move from this one place where you've come to rest. Now, to put it in context very quickly, and I wish we had time to do an entire series in Colossians, but that little church was was actually battling this issue where some were coming in and saying, you know, there's more to the gospel than what you've been taught. As a matter of fact, there's some really cool spiritual truths you ought to know and practice. And it included everything from worship of angels, angelic beings, 
to truth concerning the supposed commands that God had given outside of Scripture and, and these practices. And so there were some who were trying to introduce these extras to the faith. And Paul is saying, don't move off of the gospel where you have been taught. And that's what we're tempted to do because sometimes we feel like the message concerning Jesus Christ might not be enough. And our world is filled with alternatives. Everything from the spiritual side of things, alternative faiths, all the way to the secular side of things where some people just say, mm, I talked to a guy this week who was a really kind and uh, gracious uh, wait staff at a, I was meeting some friends for lunch and we began to talk and he said, I'm agnostic. And he'd, he'd grown up in a religious home but at some point as a teenager just saw too much inconsistency there and just said, you know, and, and he was, he, even there he was a little apologetic because I, I was actually meeting two other friends who happened to be pastors and we had already divulged that. Uh, so I think he didn't want to hurt our feelings that he doesn't believe the God we serve and preach and teach about. And I'm not offended by that at all. I'm, I'm saddened for him. So he's chosen to move to more of a secular side. Just not even going to think about God. But Paul says, though there may be some alternatives, don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Now let me conclude with this thought. When the Bible speaks of hope, it is speaking of a confident expectation that God's people have to experience exactly what he's promised. And it may be a future experience, it may be something presently, but this is not kind of a random, generic uh, hope, and I've spoken of this in this place already, um, where we say, boy, I hope it doesn't snow again. But we're never sure. And, and one of the things that uh, is obvious to us is that weather patterns can change day from day, uh, day to day, sometimes so rapidly, whereas yesterday we're forecasting uh, sunny, warm, it could suddenly be rainy and cool or even snowy. And so we use the word hope because we're not really sure what's going to happen in the future, right? That's not how the Bible uses this term hope. When the Bible speaks of hope, it actually is referencing a confident expectation for good. And in this case, it's tied to the person of Jesus Christ, the work of reconciliation that he's done, the promise of God that he'll make you holy, blameless, and above reproach one day and present you securely and fully in his presence. It's going to happen. And Paul is saying, don't walk away from that confident expectation the hope of the gospel. The gospel is not a secret message for a select few. Do you see that next phrase? The hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven? You see, he's saying that in part because, like I said, these false teachers were sneaking into the church at Colossae going, hey, there's more. They haven't told you everything. Paul's saying not only have we told you everything, it's the same gospel that's been preached throughout the world. Ah, yes, different expressions here and there, little doctrinal nuances, but at the end of the day, the gospel is the good news concerning what God the Father has done through Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, by the power of the Holy Spirit to save sinners like us. This gospel is not a secret message for a select few. It is and always has been a message for the nations of the earth. 
The disciples and apostles were faithful, faithfully proclaiming it in the first century, and it's continued right up until this day. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go and make disciples of all nations. You baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I know there are some who would say the gospel was lost for 1,500 years, and then it was about 150 years ago, it was restored through the work of God, but I submit to you, did Jesus fail in keeping his promises for 1,500 years? Did he somehow lose control and nobody was faithfully proclaiming the gospel, so nobody was faithfully building the church? I submit to you that Jesus is greater than that possible scenario, and he has faithfully built his church through these 2,000 years since he ascended on high. And Paul wrote this letter about 30 years after Jesus spoke those very words, and he himself had received the gospel from those who came before him. He entrusted it to faithful men like Pastor Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, uh, and, and and said to Timothy, and you entrust this gospel to other faithful men, and that baton has been passed generation by generation, century by century, until today we stand in this place as a witness that Jesus builds his church. So anytime someone shows up in the course of history with supposedly new truth or new insight, you should be alert and you should start to smell problems, if not heresy. Now, how do we respond? Well, I want you to think through this passage, and there were three big categories. First of all, and we didn't study this in depth, but you could go back to verse three and just follow Paul's example with prayers of gratitude. He named some very specific things that he was thankful for in those people. What are you thankful for as you look around you in this assembly? And I know some of you are brand new, and you really don't know who's here and what's going on. I'll give you an example. Some of us have had opportunity to interact with, with Bob and Doreen since her surgery and try to give a little help. And they're not here today. We hope they'll be back soon. But Kristen and I were down there a couple of nights ago. And as we came away from them, we just said, you know, praise God for that humility and testimony of faith. Life has not been easy for them. Bob suffered three strokes, for those of you who don't know him. And, and, and for our first-time guests, normally they sit right up here, Gideon, took the spot today, but Bob's usually there, and he has very limited physical capacity, but he has just the sweetest spirit, and Doreen has cared for him for, through these many years that he's been in this weakened condition, and now she's had this shoulder surgery, and the prognosis is good, but I mean, there's just not a complaining bone in them. I thank God for the grace of Christ that I see and hear in them. See, that'd be an example of just taking time to think through who's here, what's God doing, and being thankful for that. Number two, hymns of praise. You know, hymns of praise need to be a part of your regular personal worship. And I know most of you probably have a playlist of some kind, but does your playlist reflect the kind of of Christ-centered, Christ-substance that you see in verses 15 through 20? You know, my playlist, even though I sang some of these songs when I was a kid, like Deep and Wide, um, or any of you remember that old chorus? Um, It's a kid's song. Uh, The only phrase that's come to mind right now is, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on a tack. (laughs) I think, you know, somebody meant well, but really? I mean, what, what are we teaching our children? 
No, I think I've grown beyond that. (laughs) And you should too. (laughs) Build a playlist of Christian music that has texts and tunes that that would run parallel to Ephesians 2 or Ephesians 1, 15 to 20. Hymns of praise need to be a part of every one of our lives, but the big point this morning would be continue in the faith. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. God has promised to complete this work where you will one day be holy and blameless and above reproach. And some of you battle discouragement and hopelessness every day feeling like you try your best. It's just not working out. It's one step forward and sometimes it's, it's two, step backs, but you, two steps back, but you get your eyes off of yourself and you get your eyes on the sure promises of God and you set your heart on him and him alone and say, I praise you that you've already shed your blood. You've reconciled me to the God that I was hostile against and alienated from and and you've brought us together, and you're working this transformation, oh God, let it be completed today. Continue in the faith. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Would you bow your heads with me, please? And let's just meditate for a moment. What would God have you to do How would he have you to respond? You know, if you're here today and you're not even sure that your sins have ever been cleansed away and removed by this powerful blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would love to talk with you a little more. And I'll be here at the front after the service and share with you a little more of of how you can know, how you can be absolutely sure that your sins are taken away, that you're in right relationship with God, that everything we've spoken about this morning is for you. Maybe you're here this morning and and Jesus just hasn't felt real to you. Maybe you've even begun to explore some other paths of faith, some other religions even. Said, well, maybe, you know, that coworker who suggested I consider these other teachings from around the world. Maybe there's something to that. Oh, friend, don't, don't leave the hope of the gospel. You remain. Let somebody pray with you. Let one of us just walk this path of questions and struggles with you. Christ calls you. Father, there are dozens and dozens of needs represented here this morning and how we pray that you would give us grace to rest in your word, to believe it, that you would grow our faith. And like the Colossian believers, we are we're tempted and tested to walk away but I ask that by the power of your spirit you would cause us to continue in the faith even as we seek to continue in the faith. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.